Hello, welcome to the IPR podcast. I am your host, Roy Li, and today we invited three amazing scholars to talk about Luke Cooper's book, Authoritarian Contagion, The Global Threat to Democracy. We have, of course, Luke with us here, a senior research fellow at the London School of Economics and Political Science. And we also have Dr. Priya Chako, senior lecturer at the University of Adelaide, and Dr. Rock Duning Fonsowish, lecturer in sociology at the University College of London and research associate at LSE. So maybe, Luke, could you introduce our audience to some of your main ideas in your book? And how is your notion of authoritarian protectionism different from other authoritarianisms, protectionisms, and or classical neoliberalism? So hi, Roy. Um, thanks so much for having me on to the podcast. It's really good um, to be here. Um, so I guess with the book, I started with a sense that many people, both academics and non-academics, have had um, over the last 15 years or so that something new and different is happening in our politics, um, a change in elite politics, the emergence of a new kind of right-wing politics that we can identify differences in the kinds of narratives that elites are using to cohere political uh, legitimacy. And so I started thinking about those narratives and practices about how elite politics has been transforming. And I made a distinction in the book between what I call the authoritarian protectionism of today um, and the authoritarian individualism of the 1980s. So I was really influenced in this um, idea by the work of Stuart Hall and his famous analysis of Thatcherism as authoritarian populism. What Hall called authoritarian populism, I recast as authoritarian individualism to build this contrast with elite politics today. And Hall argued that there was this new and powerful hegemonic movement um, emerging amongst the Anglo-American elite that was driven by this a fervently moral set of con of considerations and both Thatcher and Reagan depicted nations of hard-working people who had been thwarted by bureaucracies by government and by a corrupt corporatist elite and they both held out this vision of society as essentially a kind of war of all against all a, a, a society of individuals and not of a, anything that we would see as uh, a collective politics. In contrast, today we see the emergence of something new, what I call authoritarian protectionism, which is very collectivist in its discourses. And in the book, I talk about this as a movement from I won't protect you, you're on your own, to this notion that I will protect you if, and this is of course the big if, you're part of my group, you're on my team. And what, what the new authoritarian protectionists mean by that is usually the ethno-nation. So authoritarian protectionism, I, I, I argue, has basically three simple steps that you go through. First, you define the nation in these very uh, racialized ethnic terms. Secondly, you say that the nation has partisan interests, fundamental interests that are separate and distinct from all the people that aren't uh, included. And then you say, well, there's an emergency of some kind. There's a civilizational crisis. And I think through those sh shifts, you see how this has implications for democratic institutions and the rule of law, and um, because it involves the idea that the in-group 
has fundamental interests which are at risk and elites could in principle persuade the in-group, the insiders, the ethno-nation to attack democracy on grounds of self-preservation. And of course, we've seen that happen in countless countries, um, notably in the United States, where they, where Trump uh, literally persuaded people to physically attack democracy, to launch an insurrection in defence of their partisan interests. But of course, it's not just Trump. We have Modi, we have Bolsonaro, thankfully, on his way out in Brazil. As to why this is happening is that for authoritarian individualism to work, it kind of required something that doesn't exist right now, and that's namely a critical mass in society that were experiencing rising living standards and imagined that the changes in their living standards were down basically to their hard work, not down to anyone else. Take away those conditions and add in ecological crisis, economic crisis, economic stagnation, falling real wages, uh, rising economic and regional inequality, then you lose the basis for authoritarian individualism. Thank you, Luke. Um, so for now, let's go to Priya. Um, in the forum, you make a slightly different argument, which is authoritarianism is a product, not simply a reaction of the moral, social, and economic hierarchies created by neoliberalism. Um, could you first briefly explain your argument and then tell us what you think of Luke's response to your argument in the forum? Firstly, Luke, congratulations on the book. I, I really like that it has a global and non-Eurocentric scope, which many books on authoritarianism lack. And I like that it foregrounded the claim to protection. As I read the book, Luke's emphasis was on authoritarian protectionism as a reaction to the economic and social outcomes of neoliberalism, which I agree with. I've made that argument myself. But I wanted to highlight how older forms of neoliberalism prefigured some of the conservative and authoritarian moral and political aspects of contemporary authoritarianisms. So, for instance, many older neoliberal projects emphasised conservative family values and the aim of that was to facilitate greater reliance on the family and not on the state for social protection. Many older neoliberal projects also scapegoated minorities, migrants, and the poor for societal problems. So previous neoliberal projects didn't really promote abstract market individuals, in my view. They promoted market individuals that were grounded in some pretty conservative and reactionary values. And this was true of both conservative neoliberal regimes like Reagan and Thatcher, and the so-called third-way progressive neoliberalisms. So it was Bill Clinton, for instance, who introduced a really punitive social welfare regime in the United States. In Australia, where I'm speaking from, the same Labor government that opened the borders to capital made life much harder for refugees and asylum seekers in the name of border protection. And many forms of neoliberal theory as well promoted market individuals who were grounded in traditional values associated with Christianity and with Western civilization. So the mission statement of the Mont Pelerin Society, for instance, was a defence of Western civilization. Um, it's neoliberalism for a defence of Western civilization. So I think highlighting those continuities helps explain why the rhetoric of protectionism has been so appealing. It, it didn't come out of the blue. These ideas have become the dominant public culture in many countries over many decades. In terms of Luke's response, he's very adamant that authoritarian protectionism is a new paradigm, which isn't classical neoliberalism. 
I'm still not sure what classical neoliberalism actually is. You know, why is um, Thatcherism and Reaganism classical? Why not Pinochet? Um, neoliberalism has always taken different forms in different countries. The original neoliberalism in India, for instance, was not the original neoliberalism in the UK. So I'm, I'm still not convinced by that argument. I'd certainly agree that we're seeing new political and economic hybrids starting to emerge, but perhaps it's more that new forms of neoliberalism are emerging. Perhaps they're new forms of national neoliberalism rather than the globalist forms that we've had in previous decades. I'm also not sure about authoritarian protectionism being a new hegemonic paradigm because this suggests a degree of stability. And while it's true that authoritarian leaders keep getting elected, they don't have solutions to the various crises that we're facing. So I wonder to what extent this is a new hegemonic paradigm. Perhaps we're still in an extended period of crisis with morbid symptoms, um, to quote Gramsci. The other quibble I had was with the idea of authoritarian protection, with the idea of authoritarian protectionism, is the extent to which it can be applied across countries. I think the level of protection authoritarian regimes offer, even rhetorically, differs across countries. With India, which is you know, the case that I know best, the government does claim to be protecting the Hindu so-called majority from minorities and, and elites. But that's only one aspect of the Modi regime's political project. It, in reality, it provides limited amounts of material support via social and economic protection. And it places a lot of emphasis on individual and community and business self-reliance and aspiration. And that's justified in terms of Hindu nationalism, as well as you know, economic growth. Hindu nationalism has a very strong bent towards self-reliance rather than protectionism. So I wonder how, um, how widely the argument uh, actually applies. Thank you, Priya, for your response and for bringing up the question of generalizability. And so I guess a question for Rog is then, how do you think Luke's book or arguments can help us think about the current Russian invasion into Ukraine? Uh, thank you, Rory. In my introduction to the forum, I, I related it to the war in Ukraine. I'm currently actually speaking out of Krakow, Poland. So that is uh, 150 kilometers uh, or so away uh, from, from the war. And some of the stuff that Luke was suggesting about the foundations of, of authoritarian protectionism could definitely be found in demise of the Soviet Union and, and the way it, it took place, particularly in Russia. And I think that is actually connected to Priya's argument regarding the neoliberal roots of authoritarianism in 20th century and after. And nowhere is it more um, true than in Russia, particularly when you look at its transition out of uh, Soviet communism, so authoritarian communist rule. And obviously what ensued was a curious combination of, of crony capitalism and, and, and state intervention. And that is something that Luke also mentions in, in his work. That is also the hallmark of many other authoritarian regimes. That is what allowed people like Putin and, and his cronies to, to enter the stage. And uh, I would agree with Priya that there, the degree to which different regimes claim to be protecting people varies. And, and obviously in Russia and the Russian Federation since, since, since the 90s, this kind of protection in terms of welfare standards and et cetera has been very low. But the sense of civilizational crisis that Lucas is also writing about was definitely built up by the state. And it's a, it's a crisis that was made by the authorities in order to, to have something to protect the people from. What, what also Luke is writing about is the fact that authoritarian protectionism is always paired with some conservative moral 
economic system with high degrees of gender and racial oppression. That has also been true in Russia. So we see a huge shift from a imperfect nationalist in substance, but only internationalist in form sense of uh, Soviet citizenship, which ultimately was civic. This idea of Russianness was, 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 was not very ethnic. And it's only since Putin returned to power in 2012 that he shifts his rhetoric from, from speaking about which means Russian people, but in a civic way, to which means uh, Russian people in, in a very ethnic way. This really is part, of, part and parcel of, of what Luke describes when it comes to ethno-national hegemony that is at the bedrock of authoritarian protectionism. Another dimension that is mentioned uh, is what, what is happening uh, in Europe. And it's this consolidation of neoliberal governance in the EU and the fact that seemingly democratic leaders in the European Union have also, if not instituted um, authoritarian protectionism across the board, but definitely drew on some of its tools. Perhaps what is happening right now in, in Russia and, and the fact that it became so emboldened as to attack Ukraine uh, was also because supposedly democratic countries have also been heading into that direction. So Russia still has allies across the world in terms of sharing its, its, its view of third, uh, and practice of authoritarianism, but also the EU. And the, my last point would be also returning to Luke's central argument is that nationalism is a response to neoliberal globalization, but authoritarian protectionism as such is uh, also a legitimation of imperial power. And Russia's war in Ukraine is a colonial war, to quote uh, Timothy Snyder, and is, has become also a genocidal project that is aimed at eradicating the Ukrainian people. It is very much in line with imperial and ethno-nationalist hegemonic politics happening elsewhere, where Luke's authoritarian protectionism also applies. Yeah, well, thanks so much to Rock for all his help with the forum and to Priya for writing such a great contribution. I'll focus my reply on, on Priya's remarks. I do think that authoritarian protectionism intensifies and radicalises an underlying ethno-nationalism that was already present in the ideas of Thatcher and Reagan, and above all sees the diminution of the liberal element, the liberal subject, as a self-maximising rational economic um, actor. Here I'm thinking of the very short, historically short, uh, trust premiership in Britain, because it was basically an example of a strange return of authoritarian individualism. Now, the speed of its decline, that Liz Truss became literally the shortest serving prime minister in Britain's entire political history, I think is revealing in the sense that this, these ideas, this classical authoritarian individualism, can no longer connect to the new realities, the objective realities of 21st century uh, political economy and world politics. But I think I said in the book um, that Modi's premiership is an interesting combination of classic authoritarian individualism in some ways, appealing to this notion of the middle class rising and the new hardline extremist fascistic authoritarian protectionism. What Priya said in just now as well about this being a hybrid form, I think is really worth thinking about. And so the last thing I would say is around this generalizability question that Priya raises. I agree that we should always be cautious about generalizability. 
What I think is interesting, though, is in a world order in which material conflicts are increasingly aggravated by rising systemic risks, whether that's ecological crises, whether that's pandemic, it seems to me that that's the combination or the generalizable element which is underlying this shift away from neoliberalism. It posits the state having to move further and further into society, whether that's dealing with the uh, effects of climate change, whether that's providing a basic um, wage for people who can't work because there's a pandemic-related lockdown. And that's something that's really quite difficult to reconcile with the core ideological foundational claims of neoliberalism. And broadly, we see the mutation or the hybrid element emerge, which is basically that those structures that were produced in the neoliberal era become much more dependent on state intervention for their reproduction. So they're still with us, but they take on a different form. Um, so yeah, thank you so much um, for your engagement. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I want to thank Luke, Priya and Brock for sharing their amazing insights. And thank you for listening. Please look forward to our next IPR podcast.